Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey guys, we thanks for coming, patrons, friends, and supporters. And uh, Quinn, thanks for joining me, buddy. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited, and it's about to be fun. Guys, thanks for coming, and we are here to talk about what the hell happened. The end of the show. It's the much promised Quinn and Dave rant angrily about the H. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not going to rant angrily. We are mostly going to search through the rubble, let's call it, of the HBO ending, uh, looking for little pieces of dragon glass and gold nuggets that we can use to string together some more educated guesses about what George is going to do for the end game. You guys know that's what I've been sort of, you know, that's the angle I'm taking with my latest video, my next videos and stuff. And uh, yeah, and uh, speaking of new angles, Quinn, before we get into all that, you just put out a cool new video about time, timey-wimey stuff, Wibbly as they wobbly. like to say. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm a, I don't know if you... Do you watch Dark on Netflix? Yes, I have seen Dark. I have not seen season two yet, so don't spoil it. Oh, my lips are <laughs> sealed. Well, we'll have to talk about that at a different time. In any case, you do have sort of a little new format going. got some new equipment, so why don't you uh, brag, about your, brag about your gear. Tell everybody what your new video is about. Yeah, so my new video is about time in a general sense and a song of ice and fire. And I'm talking about, you know, a bunch of different concepts found in real world mythology. And I'm tying in some real world, real world science into it and some real world philosophy and basically comparing and contrasting and just thinking about what time actually means in A Song of Ice and Fire and the way it could work. And yeah, I, I'm really proud of it and I really like it. And the most important thing is, well, one of the most important things is I'm on camera now, and so it's like me being a host and actually being there, so it's really exciting. And I'm working on the lighting a little bit, but yeah, things pretty good. Yeah, show the world what you got, man. Um, definitely dig it, and uh, it is it is fun to get on camera and, you know, shatter everyone's illusions that you're not a black person. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit traumatic for everyone to find out sometimes. Apparently, I've got a lot of, oh my god. I was enjoying the uh, sociological discussion you and Gray have been having on Twitter. It's been pretty funny. Yeah, it's quite interesting, for sure. In any case, man, always loved your stuff. Uh, one of the reasons why I asked you to come on, because uh, one of the first, the first video I ever saw from you made a big impression on me. And it was, of course, your video about the she of Irish folklore, the city, as they are sometimes mispronounced. Mm -hmm. S-I-D-H-E, it's that weird word. Sometimes I-she. Mm-hmm is the, the full name, the people of the mounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I thought it would be basically what we're talking about here is the others, the Weirwoods, King Bran, what does all that mean? Your video on the she was, 
think it's one of the first like YouTube Song of Ice and Fire videos that I really got excited about. And uh, so I actually had this in a different place in the outline, but why don't you go ahead and give a little encapsulation of that? Because in my last video, I had spent a whole bunch of time talking about the inherent connections between the others and the Weirwoods and how, you know, this would need to be resolved by the end. And I really feel like that's deepened by the whole uh, she thing. So go ahead and give okay. us your little short version of that, I guess. So that video is comparing and contrasting uh, Irish pseudo-history, Irish mythology, to um, the conflict between the children of the forest and mankind in A Song of Ice and Fire. And basically, the reason, the, how I made this connection was I noticed that George R. R. Martin had said in like a previous post or a response to a fan that we should think of the others in his series as frozen she. And so I really did a bunch of research and found out about the she and what they were. And essentially, the she were kind of nature spirits in, in Irish mythology. And they did things like protect trees. And in their mythology, there's a whole thing about an invasion from pe of people from Iberia, the Milesians, coming over and trying and kind of cutting down the trees and taking the land from the she. And there's a bunch about packs being made and the world being split and like the, the outer world being separated from the world of men. Uh, so a bunch of very similar concepts. There's even also um, an element where the she create a storm, a mystical storm to block the uh, Milesians from getting over. So it's very similar in a lot of ways. It's kind of similar. Well, that in particular is similar to the breaking of the arm of Dorne and them kind of creating like using nature and using their power to kind of block men from kind of getting to their land. So it's similar in that way, for sure. It uh, reminds me a lot of some of the partition ideas that we've been getting into in the Signs and Portals series, where we've been talking about the idea that, you know, the others originally maybe were green men or some sort of more, you know, unfrozen she, if you will, um, and that they were somehow driven out of the, quote, weirwood net or uh, that the weirwood net might have been sort of divided. Um, and then you sort of see that potentially paralleled by the wall and the lands north of the wall and south of the wall. Um, so, yeah, there's, if nothing else, you can see the wall as definitely that division where they're dividing the land and, you know, exiling one group to the realm. But, you, yeah, I mean, that just you, it has so many implications for A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, the reason they're connected with the others, I don't think I got to this part, was because he calls them frozen she. And so the implication is that if they are just frozen she, they're just like... That, that would mean that the others are just an icy version of the children of the forest, essentially. So it's implying that they're coming from, like, the same thing. They're both nature spirits. Totally. And that's what one of the things we were talking about in some of the Old Ones discussions that we had on this channel. And I think I had you on for a couple of those where we were talking about, you know, the clues that the others potentially might be, you know, green men or former green men, if you will. Anyways, we'll come back to the she a little bit more later, but let me just start off with a really basic question. You know, we got Space Jam Aria to defeat the defeat the others, as I like to say. And, you know, the stunt was comical, but the real the real thing that we're all tripping on is like, you know, what, all we had to do was stab the others with the Valerian steel sword and they die and that's it. Wasn't very satisfying. So just open ended question, how do you think this might end in the books in a way that is a little more satisfying. If I operate on the, under the assumption that there is like a physical body to like the, the leader of the others, 
I feel like destroying that guy and really like killing that and destroying the others has to have like some kind of consequence because it would be like destroying like a force of nature. So it needs to hurt. It needs to be more than just like shattered ice everywhere. But I did ha also have a bunch of ideas about how I wish the show would have gone. Do you want me to get into that too? Yeah, I guess that's actually what I kind of meant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, okay. So what I would have liked to have seen would have been... Number one, Jon Snow fights the Night King. I really feel like they were building that tension for a long time and it wasn't, it wasn't resolved and it was extremely unsatisfying. So I would have liked Jon Snow fights the Night King and then if we have to work this Arya thing into it, then like have Arya come in at the last minute and barely kill the Night King because I don't buy that he's like touching her and it's not like immediately freezing her neck. So I feel like just by him touching her, she should be a goner and she should kill him at the last minute. That kills him, his body at least. But then this is where Danny comes into play because Bran says to Danny, now, but he's still inside of the werewolf net. Like we might have killed this physical form, but he still exists. You can't just, but it needs, you need to purify it. So it's like he gets Danny to burn the werewolves. And this is kind of where I guess it gets into like the correct pottery. But like, so it's kind of like my kind of hypothesis that the weirwood trees are connected. And then also dragon fire is not just fire, right? This is, this is magic fire it's, and it's tied into the Valyrian magic and it's tied into what can destroy the others and all of that stuff. So it's like she sets the Winterfell tree on fire and it ignites all the other weirwoods. And so the weirwood net has been cleansed and that's where it gets into your theory of burning the weirwoods. I'm, t I'm taking this from you. So yeah. Um, just building off of your theory. And so it gets into that. And then maybe at the end, like maybe the very final shot could have been like a weirwood seedling growing back because it's been purified and now it's coming back again. So that's kind of would have been my more vision, just building on what they did. Yeah. That was definitely, those were definitely the kind of ideas that I was having. You know, just the idea that the we destroy his physical body, we'd think that we'd won, and then, oh, we haven't actually won. It's a little bit, you know... It's a little tougher than that. I mean, the Night's King is supposed to be an 8,000-year-old sorcerer. So, yeah, and, and plus, the, it's, it's pretty a pretty classic trope. The sorcerer, you defeat his physical body, and he retreats to the soul jar and spawns again or something like that. I mean, it would have been fun. would have liked to have seen something, you know, resolved inside the Weirwood Net. Uh, but, you know, uh, they only had six episodes, Quinn. They couldn't afford to do any more. I guess not. Yeah, I definitely... Well, that was that was got kind of my interpretation building off of what they did. But like I, you know, I always wanted to see there to, I always wanted to see a kind of mental battle between Bran and the Night King. That's what I really wanted. Something that was kind of like on some kind of weird astral plane. But yeah, they didn't go in that direction. Well, one of the videos I'm I've got planned for the future is to talk about uh, the possibilities for seeing a Night's King, something equivalent to the Night's King in the books. Um, obviously, Euron is the is one of the prime candidates. I do think that there could be a Night's King spirit somewhere inside the Weirwood Net uh, in the Heart of Winter or something that is looking to find a body, sort of in a Luki style from Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. It's another another classic trope that we could see. Uh, and it would be a fun way to develop the idea of the Great Other because George likes to uh, do this thing where like everyone thinks there's a deity, but there's actually some some explanation for it. Like the old gods turn out to be you know, dead green seer, hive mind that lives inside the trees or whatever. And I know he's done a lot of other sleight of hand stuff with deities in uh, his other writings. 
So it would be cool if the Great Other sort of did exist, and it's actually just the original Night King locked away inside the Weirwood Nap. Because, of course, you, Quinn, you know that I do think that the, you know, speaking in book canon, the legend of Night's King and Queen actually is about the Long Night. Even though it sort of sounds like it's happening shortly after the Long Night, I think that's one of those fog of history things, blotty blotty, and that the original Night King was the progenitor of the Others. Um, and I think that's that's one of the interesting things that we're going to find out, I think, mm-hmm. is that the show didn't make all of that up whole cloth. The show's actually going to be a little bit closer to the book canon in that there is a Night King creature and that he is the progenitor of the Others. Um, so do you think we will see a Night's King in the books in some form? This is such a hard question. If I had to, if I had to just say my answer now, I would say no. I would say no because I, I just think the others are driven by something. I, I don't know if we'll get a central figure like that. Now, as far as like Bran, like having some contact with like some kind of entity or some kind of intelligence or consciousness or something, I could see that happening. But I don't know if there's going to be a physical body, a guy with like a horn crown walking around saying, I am the Night King. Yeah, I've speculated that maybe he will only exist inside the Weirwood Net mm-hmm. and not actually be a physical thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just like sort of the, the force that drives the others. If it's not centralized, then that would sort of help build towards the idea that the others, it's not about like killing the bad guy, but about understanding where the others came from. And that's that's actually one of the first questions I've got here on the discussion point is, what about this connection between the others and the Weirwoods? How could it possibly be resolved? You know, the, I've speculated that it'll be a matter of Bran finding out information from the ancient past that will help us understand how to defeat the others. But how can this be more complicated than just stabbing them with Valyrian steel, do you think? I mean, there are a few ways. I mean, it has to be... It has to be Bran going up against something inside of the Werewolf net, net, I think. I mean, because, like, what is his role in all of this? He has to face off against something that's almost as powerful as he is and kind of subdue it or destroy it. That's what I think. Yes. And I think there's ample foreshadowing of a fight inside the Werewolf net, too. Uh, I've talked about this before a little bit. The whole battle of the Whispering Woods... Mm-hmm. with Rob and Jamie and all that, like the Whispering Woods, hello, that's the Weirwoods. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the imagery that's going on in there, um, the people are hiding in the trees and they sort of come out of the trees and there's a lot of really cool language going on. I think that legend about Simeon Eyes going to the wall to watch the Hellhounds fight, I think the Hellhounds fighting is a motif that George uses to talk about a struggle inside the Weirwood Net because essentially... Night King is a Stark, according to legend. So when you have Brandon the Breaker, who might be the last hero, going against the Night King, this is a Stark versus Stark type of thing. Similarly to when the Starks fought the Warg King or grabbing Grey Wolf in the Skin Changer War, I think the whole motif of Hellhounds fighting has to do with this Stark brother-brother fight. Um, and I think I've seen just a lot of clues that it happens inside the Weirwood Net. So we've found clues about people getting stuck in there, about there needing to be a rescue mission to get somebody out of there. This is one of the reasons why in the End of Ice and Fire videos I started speculating so freely about Bran getting stuck or needing to go confront the Night King inside the Weirwood Net because I'm pretty damn sure that in the books, like you said, this is going to come down to Bran needing to confront something powerful and surely on the astral plane. I mean, he's not really cut out to fight people in the physical world 
except for like, you know, with wolves and ravens and cool stuff like that. And they kind of almost tap into this on the show. I mean, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether or not he was seeing the astral plane or if he just like kind of like astral projected to some other place. But yeah, he goes into the werewood net and like the Night King like touches him and like sees him and stuff like that through the werewood somehow. So yeah, that's kind of maybe like the show's kind of weird half-assed way of doing that. Mm-hmm. They often do that actually. They often kind of like when John was resurrected, they didn't show you that he was inside Ghost, but they did sort of like have the camera linger on Ghost for a long time, and then Ghost opens his eyes, and then John wakes up. So it it feels like them just sort of giving a little nod to the book canon. I agree Throwing that. A bone. Yeah, I agree that that um, again another thing that the show got right according to book canon that we'll find out is correct is that Night King and the others can operate inside the Weirwood Net, or they they have some ability to confront Bran inside the Weirwood Net. Uh, I think all of that makes a ton of sense. So I'm really looking forward to seeing something like that. That's why I was so disappointed when they were ended just by the stabbing. It's like, that's it? I mean, we've known that for several seasons that you can stab them with Valerian Steel. And if Valerian Steel will crack them open, then why doesn't Dragonfire melt them? Because, I don't know, it doesn't... Yeah. Anyways. It makes them very weak in a lot of sense. Like, it's just a poke. All you need to do is poke him. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) It's a little, yeah, a little bit of a little anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. For sure. So here's a good question. One of the things I mentioned in my video that was underwhelming was the idea that Bran went through all this effort to go north and gain the knowledge of all everything that's ever happened in Westeros, and then he really didn't do much with it. Um, in particular, I was very confused by how they showed, they showed us Bran seeing the origin of the Night King it seemed like it was something really important for him to understand, and then in the end, we didn't really. It didn't matter that he was made with dragon glass by the children of the forest. None of that mattered. All we needed to know is that they were ice demons that needed to be stabbed with a sword. So, in the books, what kinds of things do you think Bran might do with his weirwood net knowledge? Like not just all of his green seer power, but specifically his ability to see the past. What kinds of things might he go and find out? Please say Moon Meteors. Well, I think the most important thing he could reveal is R plus L equals J, of course, and nothing else. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, but Moon Meteors would be great. Like, the origin of the White Walkers. Like, just, like, learning the secrets of history and learning what actually went down during the long night and why things are happening the way they are. And then also, I wanted to say, too, if if the Weirwoods were to get burned, then it would matter a lot more if Bran, like, kind of downloaded the consciousness, because he'd be the last thing left. Like, if it all got erased, he would be... If he had the memory of all the past and stuff, then if it got burned, that then it would make sense why he's important. But, yeah, um... Yeah, so just, like, the secrets of the Long Night and the secrets of the past and just understanding why all of it... Kind of a version of what they did in the show, I guess, with, like, learning what the origin was, but, like, they could... I'm sure George R. R. Martin would find a way to actually make it relevant to what happens in the in the modern era. Yeah, that's that's the whole problem with this with just needing to stab them mm-hmm. is that it doesn't create any space for a need for knowledge. Um, so that's why I was thinking that you know part of the knowledge that we would need is that their power comes from the weirwoods, and so the weirwoods have to be destroyed or shut down or cleansed or something 
in order for the other's power to be really, really ended. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for because that would, that would sort of fit, right? Like he's got to figure out something about their origins. He realizes they're connected to the weirwoods and that the power comes from the weirwoods the same as his power does. This sets up this awful kind of scenario where Bran is forced to potentially confront the idea of shutting down the weirwood net. But it's kind of like he would be willing to do what the children of the forest were unwilling to do in the past. Because it's like they never, they didn't, they defeated the White Walkers, but they didn't destroy them. Because if it, if it did involve destroying the Weirwood Net, that would be a really hard decision for them to make. Mm. It would be easier for them to just say, like, we can just make them sleep for a few thousand years, rather than let's destroy the Weirwood Net. Oh, Quinn, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's... <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's actually really satisfying. Why did why were the White Walkers defeated, but not permanently defeated? Because to permanently defeat them, you have to shut down the entire Weirwood Net, and they didn't want to do that. Yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? For sure, yeah. So, a minute ago, backing up, you talked about the idea of, well, if the Weirwoods get burned and the only thing that's left of them is inside Bran, now Bran's really important. So we, we talked about this a little bit in our pre-chat. And in the show, they act like Bran is the only storehouse of all of the Weirwood Net knowledge, and that if Bran dies, all of that knowledge dies with him. That doesn't actually make any sense unless everything that's inside the Weirwoods left and went into Bran. Because otherwise... Bran dies, so what? Sooner or later, another green seer will be born, and they'll be able to put their hand on the weirwoods and uh, and become a green seer and have access to that knowledge again. So it it could be the idea that Bran is so important could it potentially imply, like you were saying, that everything that's in the weirwood net left and went into Bran um, because of this idea that the weirwood net might need to be shut down. So, mm-hmm. but they didn't establish that in the show. It's just kind of like, in fact, it. it Nothing that happened involving Bran and the Weirwoods or the White Walkers was clear at all. It was all just kind of muddled and confusing. It's like, I'm not sure what's going on here the whole time. Yeah, it's one of those things where, again, we're we're combing through the rubble um, of of the HBO ending. Because, you know, a lot of times what they seem to do is like they have the broad plot points, the skeleton um, of the outline of whatever George told them several years ago. But then when things change, you get the whole butterfly effect happening. Shout out to Gray Area's new video. And then you get, you know, things like you get these plot points that are left in isolation. And so they don't make as much sense anymore because some of the steps in between or some of the the plot devices that make brands, you know, weird net knowledge more relevant are uh, left out. But I really am fascinated by the idea of what is brand going to be like? So in, in the in the show, he taps into his green seer power a couple of times, and he's still Bran. But then there comes that moment when Blood Raven is about to die. The White Walkers are invading the cave, and now it's like, oh, it's time for you to become me. And Bran seems to do a download thing where he now is the new three-eyed Raven, and he becomes sort of emotionless and you know, Robo Bran or whatever. <laughs> now in the books, we haven't gotten to that point. Um, he's using the weirwood net, but he has not done an equivalent of a download where he is, you know, Blood Raven dies and he takes on some new identity. So we're getting into the mechanics now of what being a green seer means. In the books, and I'm going to talk about this a lot in my next video, um, in the books, 
Being a green seer means essentially Bran eats the weirwood paste, and this, quote, weds him to the trees. And after that, he seems to have a link to the weirwoods. And in fact, even after he um, gets off of his throne and is carried to his bedchamber that night, as he's falling asleep and looking at the candle, he actually then goes back into a weirwood dream and sees more visions. So it seems that Bran now is connected to the weirwood net and can access that weirwood net you know, information without actually even physically touching the weirwoods. So do you think that we're going to get some equivalent, like, big change download kind of event where suddenly Bran takes on more than just, you know, being wedded to the trees? Because, and I'm sorry to ask a question that interrupt myself, but think about Bloodraven, okay? Bloodraven's been a green seer for a long time, but he still is Bloodraven. He's not quite like Robo Bran in the show. He talks about, I had a brother that I loved and a brother that I hated and a sister that I loved. And it's also implied that he's been like spying on his long lost loves for a long time and watching them and all that stuff. So is there going to be something in the in the books, like in the show, where Bran does a big download? And if that happens, what does that mean? Does that mean everything in the trees is now in Bran because they got burned or what? I mean potentially it i mean it could be something different it could be a special situation with brand it could get so desperate where it's like we're gonna do something different with you than what we did with blood raven like blood raven was allowed to just exist because it wasn't so crucial that like he needed to he needed to be here i agree but with you it's like all of the werewolves are gonna we're gonna burn it all so we need you see what i mean so yeah um so i i would say potentially um, but as far as like how much it would change Bran, I don't know if it, he would completely, perhaps it, perhaps it would work differently as far in George R. R. Martin's interpretation. Perhaps there would still be an element of Bran that was maybe like the front personality, but then there would be all the other ones in the back. Because I think about Dune, and you put Dune in the outline, I think, and in Dune, Leto II, though he possesses all of these other personalities, personalities of his ancestors, like stretching back millions of years. His base personality is still Leto. That is still the one that's in the front. So you see what I mean? So maybe Bran is in the front, but then he can access all of the other ones as well. So maybe it's maybe it just works differently than the way it was would work differently than the way it was presented in the television show, which which I guess was their kind of way. It's just like we're gonna make him sound mystical by having him talk slow and speak cryptically and have no emotions. So it's like yeah. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of a shortcut. And and I did, you know, in the shows, um, you know, in fairness, Bran is the hardest thing for the show to pull off because so much of his stuff happens inside his own head in dreams and visions. It's very hard to convey that on television. And so you just get this weird guy sort of rolling his eyes back into his head and, you know, being robo-Bran or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the idea that that he is, that he is something different is going to happen to him. Um, Blood Raven, they are seem to be nursing him along because they haven't had another Green Seer in so long. So Blood Raven is basically just like waiting for Bran. But that does imply that Blood Raven is going to give out soon, um, and we probably will get something kind of like the books where the others, you know, maybe break into Blood Raven's cave. Um, I've wondered if maybe that's where we'll get some weirwood burning. Is Blood Raven's tree? might get burned and the cave collapsed and then Bran sort of escapes. Um, because Bran has some other scenes where there are symbolic burning trees or burning towers and he sort of escapes from them. Uh, so that's, that's something else I'm going to get into in a future video. But what I'm, here's another variation on this idea of downloading the Weirwood Net into Bran. 
Um, I have speculated that Azor Ahai invading the Weirwood Net was, was really what he was after, that Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest and that the whole reason why he used her for this blood magic ritual was actually to gain access to the Weirwood Net. And so Azor Ahai aside, my basic premise is that human green seers should not be skin changing the trees, that originally the trees didn't have people body snatching them essentially because that's what people are that's what we're doing is body snatching the trees when we green see a tree it's just the same as like brand taking over hodor or skin changing an animal like the the person being skin changed has a say they they're either okay with it or not and if you look at these trees they look pissed they look tortured they're bleeding they're angry they look to be you know burning or on fire and so my whole basic theory is that uh, green seeing is some sort of abomination and that originally uh, there wasn't supposed to be faces carved into the trees. There wasn't supposed to be green seers invading the tree mind, if you will. And so one of the variations of shutting down the weirwood net might be just kicking all the humans back out. And so that's maybe what's going to go into Bran is basically the, the green seer hive mind is going to go into Bran and the trees will be left with just the trees and maybe the reabsorbed spirits of the others, something like that. Your thoughts. So, yeah, I, I like that as well. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So use the word abomination and it's interesting because George R. R. Martin does use that word a bunch in that opening chapter in that prologue chapter of dance dragons. He uses the word abomination specifically when talking about taking, taking over someone else's consciousness. So just taking over something that's sentient that doesn't belong to you. So it's like, it's interesting when considering the trees in that way that maybe they're pissed or upset um, that men are inhabiting them because it makes sense because it's unnatural. Like, um, yeah, so I, I really, really like that idea. And brand downloading the green seer consciousness and just the green seers, it's interesting because I wonder then what would he do with that knowledge? Would he be able to pass that knowledge on? And I wonder how. So I wonder where does it go from there? It's like, we've given you your stuff. You take your stuff. We got our stuff. Don't come back. So I wonder what, what, what Brand's role is from that point on. What does he use it for? So, Yeah, it's kind of creepy. It does leave some unanswered questions hanging. Um, I do think of the Grey King uh, because there's a lot of clues that uh, the Grey King's throne of Sea Dragon Jaws was actually Weirwood, just as the Sea Dragon Bones appear to be Weirwood. And so you've got the Grey King potentially sitting on a weirwood throne and living for a thousand years in seven and turning gray and corpse-like. And it kind of reminds me of how Bloodraven is described as a talking statue, you know, half-man, half-statue. So I wonder, like, will Bran just have to literally try to live for, forever so that that knowledge doesn't die or as long as he can? Can he pass that on to somebody else with like a Vulcan mind meld or something? I don't know. We'll have to wait for George to start the new uh, Song of Ice and Fire series when he's done with this one. I was wondering that as well. If there was like a potential other green cedar, would it would there be able? Is this like the start of a new ritual where it's like the human thing where it's like now I'm passing it on to you, and then it's like find the next green cedar. Now I pass it on to you. Find the next green cedar, and it goes like that. Um, so that'd be interesting because then it becomes even more like Dune. Because that's kind of the way it works. It's like, I have the memories and I give them to somebody else. And it's like, they, yeah. So, yeah. Or maybe brand's all we get. Like, 
everything gets kicked out. It's into Bran, and then you and assholes better write everything down that he says before he dies, and that's that's what you get. Um, mm-hmm. But you mentioned Dune. Obviously, we're talking about the whole idea of a weirwood net, green seer king, just screams God Emperor of Dune. Um, you are the Dune Master, so... Yeah, let's let's get into this. So the the overall question is, what's Bran going to be like? What does it mean to have some part of the Weirwood Net in a person as king? What is George saying about who should be king? Um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, to start start in with any of that. It's curious. Like, is he saying that the person that should be king should be the person with the most knowledge? And that's kind of a concept that Frank Herbert does bring up. Because the God Emperor is definitely like the most knowledgeable human that's ever existed. And it's kind of like he's so knowledgeable and he has such an understanding and a depth of like human experience that it's like um, he can see so far beyond the average person and he, he really knows how humanity works. And so since he has this knowledge and since he can see so much, it, it's, it's kind of like let's say... Um, you're an adult and you can see something in the distance, but then there's like a child and because they're like a short little child, they can't see as far as you can see. But since he's taller, he can see further. And so because he has a greater depth and a greater height of understanding, it's, it's kind of a muddy analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Um, so maybe the person with the most knowledge is best to shape the path of humanity because Leto does and Dune set up this whole thing called the Golden Path. Which is like, you'll hate me for this, but this is what's best for you. Perhaps George is saying that mankind aren't mature enough. They need like a god king, because that's kind of what Frank Herbert was saying. That, yeah, we need, we, they needed this god king to show them the right way and to lead them down the best path possible. And I mean, it is very similar. Which is almost tantamount to saying that in real life, nobody's really should be king. Like nobody really knows better than everyone else to be a single monolithic authority. Like, yeah. the only way that would really make sense is if you had a god king, which we don't. Um, do you think that's part of the message, if, either from Frank or from George? Definitely definitely from Frank, because, like, the whole point of it was, like, I am being, I'm doing this so that you learn never to put someone like me in power again. He did it to make them, he's like, he's like after this, you'll be adults, and you can lead yourself, and that's literally the entire point of the whole thing. It's like, so yeah, Hmm. for sure. Well, that's really interesting because let's go back to what we were just talking about. If Bran is the last repository of the Green Seer hive mind and he can't pass it on, then it really does start to seem like that. Like Bran's job essentially is to set up new orders, to spread the real truth and knowledge to people that they need. And then once he dies... I mean, um, yeah, then we get our democracy, maybe. Um, I wonder if George will will give us little clues that that's the way it's going. Because I don't think we're going to get, like, a long, you know, many chapters of Bran as king making these reforms. It'd be one of those things where we get little hints of of where it's going. But that's really interesting that that's where Dune goes with it. Yeah, for sure. It's It's all about his whole lesson was I'm trying to make humans more responsible so they could take care of themselves. Um, For sure. And it's curious to, to wonder about what's going to happen at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. If, like, we'll see, like, Bran's tax policies or whatever. It's like an ongoing joke because George R. R. Martin said that whole thing about Lord of the Rings where he was like, oh, what happens to, like, the leftover Oryx? Do they, like, go and get genocided? I'm sure he'll wrap up the story and, like, like you said, leave hints. Um, just build the infrastructure of where he's going. 
uh, with it. And I've always thought too that the books seem it seems like what it's leading to is kind of a change in the way like the government works, right? It seems like he's making a point to be like this feudal system sucks. Like this whole system where someone is king just because their dad was king really, really sucks. And like just because your father was king doesn't mean that you're fit to be king. That's a theme that like runs through the whole thing. Yeah, I think George is absolutely putting a finger on that one too. Um so that's really interesting. Yeah, the idea of Bran as a transition uh, to new institutions and new reforms. Uh, Ball the Bard is chiming in, saying uh, she's here for Bran instituting reforms a la Game and Pale Hair. <laughs> that's an interesting one. Game and Pale Hair was one of the kings during the Moon of Three Kings. He was uh, reigned from atop Visenya's Hill for a few weeks, and he was sponsored by uh, women. Uh, for one of which was from Dorne, and they put together all sorts of really progressive reforms. So that's interesting. We'll have to look deeper into that one. We did catch on to the fact that Aegon III, uh, called the Broken King, who reigned after the Dance of the Dragons, may be a brand parallel. Um, he is a brand parallel. And uh, we're going to dig into that in a future episode as well. But the Ball the Bard is a big fan of the Dance of the Dragons as a very extended metaphor for the Ice of Fire endgame. And, of course, I spent a bunch of time with just the Daemon versus Aemond one-eyed dragon fight from that uh, Civil War uh, as, as a sort of, you know, endgame fight in microcosm. So we're definitely going to be talking more about the Dance of the Dragons in the future. But I want to stay on the topic that we're on, which is the idea of Bran, what kind of god-king he will be. What about the darker side of this, Quinn? Because... Mm-hmm. George loves writing horror. He loves to make things pretty dark. He loves to take things that other people have done, you know, ideas from Lord of the Rings, and then make them darker. Uh, So, like, Tom Bombadil becomes cold hands, you know, stuff like that. So what about the darker side of the idea of the Weirwood Net body-snatching Bran or Bloodraven body-snatching Bran or the three-eyed, you know, crow hive mind body-snatching Bran to basically get out of the Weirwood Net uh, is there going to be a little bit of a sinister implication with some of this? And here I want to shout out Tony Teflon, who's been talking about the evil children of the forest forever. Uh, so, <laughs> well, yeah, that's super, super cool because if it's the if it's the consciousness of the children of the forest, so it's like it's like okay, we tried to fight men, we tried to fight them with our weapons, didn't work. We tried to fight them with our magic, didn't work. They're just stronger than us. They're more powerful than us. Like they 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 messed us up. Let's just let's just steal their bodies. <laughs> let's take their king and now Westeros that they took from us. Now we run it, and pretty soon we might even have a dragon. So yeah, it it has it has a it has tremendous implications, for sure. Um, and yeah, and it's 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 a it's a dark it's a darker way of looking at it. But yeah, it, it, I mean the children of the forest can be viewed dark. I mean, it says in the world of ice and fire that perhaps they sacrificed their own children. And at the very best, sacrificed men to break the arm of Dorne. So I could see them doing some dark stuff like this. Yeah, I definitely favor the idea of them slaughtering tons of captive men as opposed to their own children. Um, Because, you know, the whole history of of nature gods and elves and things like that isn't all uh, peaches and and roses and and puppy dogs and warm kisses and rainbows. It's, um, you know, can get pretty dark. That's Sir Nunos. I mean, okay, so, and also with them taking over men, it's like now we can, we can, we can control you to an extent where we can make you respect nature. So I, I wonder if, like, if, if that was the thing, would we see, like, a shift 
in like the priorities of the king would it be like hey tear down this building and build a forest or like or it's like or would would they force men to act you know more in line with nature i wonder how that would work well so that's this this brings me back to my original question about blood raven which was why do the children need a human like blood raven or bran to be a green seer in a cave because they have we see that there is a bunch of other older singers enthroned on weirwood thrones they look to be more far gone like they can only sort of move their mouths and they their eyes follow bran a little bit they can't really talk um so is there why do you think the children even need blood raven or humans to be green seers okay so look preston jacobs i think was talked about this a long time ago but it's really interesting He's bringing up one of George R. R. Martin's other books, and I forget what it's called, but basically there's this hive mind. It was like an alien on an alien world. And it couldn't draw people into the hive mind until it drew in a psychic or something. And once it got a psychic, it was able to connect with the other humans. So maybe it needs that so it can um, control the rest of humanity and send, and send out dreams and affect people throughout Westeros or something like that. All right, so now this gets into the stuff that Melanie and uh, Ravi and Balabard were talking about, which is Nissa Nissa. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the books, we know this is a big deal. We know it's a big deal because lots of people talk about Azor High and looking for Azor High Reborn. And then we have a bunch of characters who step into that archetype. Uh, if you listen to any of my stuff, you know that Azor High seems to be like basically George's own archetype, his own hero mold that he's created, and a bunch of people sort of tie into it, Barrack and John and Bloodraven and Daenerys and Euron and other people like that. Um, so we know that that's important. And the same is true for Nissa Nissa. We've been having tons of fun following the path of Nissa Nissa characters for the last, I'd say, almost two years. Um, we figured out that Nissa Nissa is almost surely a child of the forest and that a lot of the Nissa Nissa people have Catwoman symbolism like Lady Cat or Cersei, who's a lioness, or the children of the forest who have cat eyes, on and on and on and on. And essentially, Nissa Nissa seems to be a very important figure. And the most important thing about her, Quinn, that I can figure out, is that she was tied to the Weirwoods, and that Azor High seems to have used her sacrifice as a way of getting power from the Weirwoods, seizing the fire of the gods, becoming a god-man. All these sort of variations of this idea are always... Um, and I'm talking about like all the various symbolic scenes that mimic the Azor High Nissa Nissa ritual, it's a strong implication that he's doing this to get power. The power he's searching for is the Weirwood Net power. And the importance of Nissa Nissa is that she inherently has a connection to the Weirwoods that Azor High is trying to make use of. Now, when she dies, she does not appear to die. She seems to go into the Weirwood Net as a green seer or somebody who's connected to the Weirwoods would. Um, I'm, I'm doing Weirwood Wood Mad Libs now. Essentially, Nissa Nissa might be inside the Weirwood Net. We've gotten a lot of clues that that is the case. It could be that Night's Queen is some sort of emanation of Nissa Nissa or Nissa Nissa trying to get out of the Weirwood Net, something like that. So what Melanie was talking about is she's talking about, you know, what is Bran going to see inside the Weirwood Net that's going to be really important? And she's wondering, is Bran going to start to understand the Azor High Nissa Nissa thing? And understand that Nissa Nissa's spirit is essentially the spirit of the trees and that it needs something. This might have something to do with the others. Because like I said, um, Night's Queen 
might simply be an emanation of Nissa Nissa. And so you have this idea of Nissa Nissa going into the weirwood net. She's trapped in there. She has something to do with the others. So do you think that the story is going to go anywhere near that? Do you think that we're going to get anything about Azor High and Nissa Nissa revealed inside of Brand's dream? Perhaps. I like the idea that she's she's trapped inside of the weirwood net. Um and maybe this is like too out there, but the, the tree, the raven tree, the tree that's corrupted and dying, I think a lot about what corrupted that tree. Maybe that was the tree where Azorahai killed Nisa Nisa and she became trapped and it I don't I don't that's kind of like super out there. But I wonder why it's corrupted and why those ravens go there every day. It hints at it's like there's something I feel like that tree is it's like it's like a little thing that's letting you know there's corruption inside of the werewolf tree. There's something wrong. It's a little bit sick, so it needs help. So I, I, I really, really like that idea and those concepts for sure. Um, and the Nisa Nisa thing is really not something that I've really even thought about a lot, really, or gone into like on my channel really that much because like it's something that a lot of people talk about. But you have a really like interesting, like unique way of like looking at it and tying it into uh, the werewolves and. So yeah, I, I just I I wish we had more information on that because it's a very interesting idea. So the one of the biggest clues about this is Lady Stoneheart and the Ghost of Highheart. Mm-hmm. They're both playing the role of what I call the Weirwood Goddess. It's Nissa Nissa dead inside the Weirwood net. So down in the cave, strewn through with Weirwood roots, we find Lady Stoneheart, who's a lot like Corpse Queen of Night's King. She literally is a, a walking corpse. There's some other cool symbolism about it. Um, and she's in a weirwood cave, and she's sort of sending out people to, to kill people. She's sending out assassins to go and take revenge. And that's exactly what we think Nissa Nissa might be doing. This might be what the others are doing. Because if we think about the others as like pissed off icy tree spirits who've been kicked out of their home, well, that might have to do with Nissa Nissa being killed. Like, basically, you can start to see the overall picture I'm painting is Azor High is this dude who's trying to take power, and he's basically just forcing his way into the weirwood net. He's sacrificing Nissa Nissa, maybe sacrificing other green men. He's the, the green men to whom the weirwoods belong are getting turned into others somehow, which I see as being exiled, uh, and similar to the, the Aishi and, and the Fomorians and all that. And so essentially, like when you see uh, Lady Stoneheart sitting in a weirwood cave sending out assassins, this could be the truth of Nissa Nissa. She's inside the world of the undead underneath the weirwood roots. And similar for the ghost of Highheart, she's a ghost who inhabits stumps of weirwoods. So they're that like weirwoods that used to be there. And she has dreams from the old gods. So it's possible that these these are giving us hints about what's going on with Nissa Nissa. And that essentially what we think of as the weirwood net is is Nissa Nissa, more or less, the mind of Nissa Nissa. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. You mentioned the weirwood tree at uh where do those Blackwoods Raven live? Raven Tree. I can't remember. Raven Tree Hall. It's called. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that is a very important symbol. I don't know that it's literally the tree where something important happened, uh, but it's definitely, like you said, hinting at the, the idea that the weirwoods, there's corruption inside the weirwood net. I think that is Azor High. And if you look at the Brackens who poisoned the uh, Blackwood Tree, you'll see it's all dragon symbolism. They've, their regular sigil is a fiery horse. And then you get bitter steel combining the dragon and the horse to give you like a fire horse. Um, and there's lots of meteor symbolism about them. Um, so basically, it's 
it's just another idea about setting the tree on fire uh, with with the meteor, which is all about Azor Ahai and all that crap. So you mentioned, okay, so the idea of a half-dead weirwood tree, right? There's one other one that sort of matches that, and it's the one in Old Town on the Isle of Ravens, where there used to be a pirate lord, and now it's the ravenry where they have the white ravens. Um, so it says... It was cool and dim inside the castle walls. An ancient weirwood filled the yard as it had since these stones had first been raised. The carved face on its trunk was grown over by the same purple moss that hung heavy from the tree's pale limbs. Half of the branches seemed dead, but elsewhere a few red leaves still rustled, and it was there that the ravens liked to perch. The tree was full of them, and there were more in the arched windows overhead all around the yard. The ground was speckled by their droppings. Bloody, bloody, bloody. Uh, okay, that's it. So... This is these aren't the white ravens, these are the black ravens here. But I like this tree because not only is it half dead, um, it's covered in purple moss. Green seers that have green eyes, it's always described as green as the moss on a tree. So purple moss across the face of the weirwood makes me think of purple eyes, Targaryens, dragons who are green seers. And that's what Azor High basically is, is a dragon person who becomes a green seer. And here this is at Old Town right next to Battle Isle, which is the likely place for Azor Ahai to come to Westeros. So I look at this weirwood tree basically as a facsimile of Azor Ahai, the half-dead green seer, um, or at least a clue about uh, the weirwood net being poisoned, half-dead, etc., etc. So it's very simpatico with the blackwood tree. For sure, definitely. And someone in the chat said purple is for royalty. It is. is Like this purple king shirt that I have. See, he's a dead king. Mm-hmm. It's on topic today because, you know, green seers are kind of dead. For sure. <laughs> Getting back to this idea of... People often ask me, what are the ways that we might get proof of moon meteor theory? One of the big ways, obviously, would be if it happens again. If the new long night falls because of some new meteor event, apocalyptic, celestial calamity, blah blah The other big way that we could get proof, obviously, is Bran seeing something in the past. Um, if any of these meteors are important at all, and not just symbolism, and they could just be symbolism and the thing that triggered the long night, but if like the meteorite or the swords made from the meteorites, if those are important, if there's a black stone on the Isle of Faces, if there's a meteorite uh, in the heart of winter, if the meteors are actually important, then it could be that Bran will see fire falling from the sky. That'd be a very easy thing to see in a vision. You could describe it in very mythical terms. You know, a fiery dragon flew through the air and there was a great, you know, then second suns erupted and, you know, all George's kind of stuff. So I'm hoping that we'll see something like that. But what I'm, what I'm wondering is why would Bran need to understand that there was a meteor event? Like, that's really just kind of fun trivia for us to know that that's what caused the long night. So is there a way in which uh, that knowledge could be important? Like, is Dawn going to come? Like, if maybe if Dawn is going to get back into the mix, that's what Bran will see is like the Dawn meteor, and he'll realize that that meteor is important and the sword's important or something like that. You got anything for me, Quinn, or am I just reaching here? Yeah, I like the idea. Me- meteors definitely seem important. I mean, the Bloodstone Emperor worshipping a stone that fell out of the sky, that's a whole thing. And then Dawn, of course, being carved out of, me- out of a meteorite. So there's like a couple ways that it could be relevant for sure. But yeah, like you said, I don't know how far George R. Martin is going to go to be like, it was meteors, it was meteors. Because I don't know if like Brian seeing something like that, I mean, he's never seen meteors before. So he's not going to, he's not going to necessarily know like even what meteors are necessarily, especially if you see 
enough meteors to do something like shatter the arm of Dorne or, um, or destroy the neck of Westeros. It would have to look like something that he'd never seen before in his entire life. He wouldn't know how to comprehend it, I don't think. See, one of the things that I've picked up about the meteors is that they have a lot of poison symbolism. A lot of the things that, uh, that George uses for meteor symbols poison things, blacken things, corrupt things, the whole black blood motif, uh, snake bites, all that stuff. So uh, even, um, even the grave worms, like the weirwood roots are described as grave worms. And I think there's, there's some symbolism that applies the weirwoods might be neutralizing the poison of the meteors. Like if you look at a shy, a shy is the most likely place where we had a big meteor impact. It's all magically blighted and shit, kind of like Valeria, but worse because it's 8,000 years old and it's still all messed up. So it could be that Westeros isn't like a shy because the weirwoods are neutralizing the poison. The weirwoods have a lot of neutralizing poison, grave, you know, grave worm, eating corruption kind of symbolism going on. So that's one thing I've, I've wondered about as far as a way to make the meteors more important. Um, but I really, let me ask you this. What do you think's in the heart of winter? Uh, in the show, we saw two places that are kind of heart of wintery. There was the White Walker Temple where um, they had like the circle of icy obelisks and a little altar in the middle. And they brought Craster's baby there and transformed him into a White Walker. We never saw that place again. Uh, and then there's, of course, the frozen weirwood tree um, with the stone obelisks around it where they made Night King. So are either one of those close to what we could see in the actual Heart of Winter in the books, do you think? There is a White Walker coffee shop in the Heart of... No, no. Okay, so... Um, it's next I to think... White Walker Daycare where the teenage White Walkers... Uh... I feel like the Heart of Winter is one of like the power points in the world of Ice and Fire. Kind of like the Heart of Darkness over in Ashai. I think it's it's kind of like a it's a place of power. So I, I think that if the cho- if my theory is kind of correct and, and a branch of the Children of the Forest like went off to figure out how to defeat man and they came up with the idea to destroy the others, then it would be like they went there to the heart of winter and that's where they did it. Um, that's where they did the act and that's where they did the magical act. And maybe that's why it became the heart of winter. Maybe it always wasn't the heart of winter. Um, but yeah, that's what I think is there. It's the place where it happened. It's the place where they were created, perhaps a place of great power. So that means there's got to be a weirwood then, isn't there? Yeah. Um, Seems what, like there would be. Uh, yeah, that's, I'm really hoping that the whole Night King tree idea is actually what we get. Um, and if it has black obelisks around it made of meteor stone, that would be even better. <laughs> uh, but I'm afraid of requesting too much uh, wish fulfillment. But, uh, Quinn, one of my favorite quotes about the Weirwoods and the Others, I use it all the time, and I'm going to use it again, Dance with Dragons. So this is from the Averamir Sixkins prologue, and this is right before he goes out of the hut, uh, picks up a Weirwood crutch, it breaks, and then he body snatches Thistle. That comes right after this. So it says, when Vermeer pushed at it, the curtain of his tent, that is, the snow crumbled and gave way, still soft and wet. Outside, the night was white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them, the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. So as I've pointed out many times, as we all know, the others are described as pale shadows and white shadows all the time. They also wear ice armor. So this weirwood is being described in the language of an other, 
And this is happening right as the army of the dead is about to march through the town. And if you look at the other sentence in this paragraph, outside the night was white as death. Well, turn N-I-G-H-T into K-N-I-G-H-T, K-N-I-G-H-T, And you have a night, an icy night that was white as death. And we know what the white icy nights are. Those are others. And then it says, pale thin clouds danced attendants on a silver moon while a thousand stars watched coldly. Cold stars that watch means their eyes. Cold star eyes are the others. So everything in this paragraph is screaming the others. And then we have this weirwood armored in ice. And then, most tellingly, we get Vermeer Sixkins, the naughty skin changer, who I believe is standing in for Azor High. He does two things, Quinn. He invades Thistle and gives her the weirwood stigmata so that she starts to turn into a weirwood tree. She bites her tongue, gets a bloody mouth, she claws her eyes out and has bloody eyes just like a weirwood, and her hands are bloody just like the red hand weirwood leaves. So she turns into a weirwood tree when Vermeer body snatches her. And I think that is because Nissa Nissa was tied to the weirwood trees, and when Azor Ahai killed her, he was essentially body snatching into the weirwoods. And what does Vermeer do after he invades Thistle? He gets bounced out of Thistle and goes into this weirwood tree the very same one that's frozen like an other. And then he goes on the wind and ends up in the one-eyed wolf. Um, but this is, you know, Ravenous Reader and I have talked about this scene, like I don't even know how many hours we've killed on this scene. But basically this is, this is really important, I think, both because we have a weirwood described as an other and because we see this naughty skin changer doing some sort of really important magical kind of reenactment there. So what do you think about that quote? What do you think George is telling us? And... Again, do you think this is a clue about the heart of winter having frozen weirwoods? Because that's what I'm seeing here is a frozen weirwood that looks like a white walker. Well, if Veramir is a stand-in for Azora Hype, then George R. Martin is further emphasizing that what Azora... Not Azora Hype, Azora High. <laughs> then George Kyle, R. Martin bastard, is, invading the weirwood trees. <laughs> yeah. George R. Martin is further emphasizing that it is an abomination what he did. Because in that chapter, he keeps saying to do this is an abomination. It's an abomination. It's an abomination. And then if if Vermeer is a stand-in, that's he's kind of like unknowingly reenacting like a historical you know moment, an event that act- that occurred before. Then he's trying to push the fact that it's an abomination. As far as the weirwoods armored in ice, that also makes a lot of sense because if it happened at a weirwood tree, then the icy weirwood tree. So it makes a lot of sense. It 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 fits perfectly. It really does. And thanks for pointing that out. Like you said, uh, Body Snatching Thistle is the abomination of this chapter. The whole chapter builds up the idea of here are the rules. Vermeer doesn't give about them. And he's leading up to this great ultimate abomination of trying to steal someone else's body. And that is what is being depicted as Azor High stealing the weirwood tree, killing Nissa Nissa, invading the frozen weirwood tree, or actually freezing over the weirwood tree by this act. So that's, that's a great observation. And this gets right back to what I was saying about kicking the others out of the weirwoods. Basically, the others are originally green men, and they're attached to the weirwoods. Azor High comes along, kicks the others out of the weirwoods so that he can be in there as a green seer. And now he's all powerful. But this has the act of poisoning the weirwood net. The others are now evicted tree spirits. They're frozen she. They're pissed off. They want their home back. And this is what leads me to think that the answer to the other's problem that isn't just stabbing them is to literally give them their home back. It's to get the humans out of the trees 
and let these pissed off nature spirits reabsorb into nature so they can stop bothering everyone. Humans can stop being green seers. There's no more others. I'm sure the dragons have to die too. That's, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, then it would make a lot more sense because I never understood that scene in the show where the Night King kind of just stares at Blood Raven. It's, it's, he's always like greeting him like, I know you and now I'm going to kill you. But then they never explain what that was. But if it's like, hey, you're like taking our shit, then it's like it makes sense why he's kind of looking at him like, hey, now I'm taking you out and then I'm going to get the other one too. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. This is going so well. Thanks for coming on, man. No problem, dude. It's fun. This is cathartic. I've, I've definitely had a lot of comments on my last video about just people saying, had a bad taste in my mouth from the season, and it's fun to sort of get back into this and think about the winds of winter and a dream of spring, get fired up again for what we're going to see from George, because, I mean, whatever he does, it's going to be so much more developed. He's got way more pages, way more space to do it. Um, and it's just the different formats. So and way more talent. Yeah. <laughs> you had to say it, didn't you? No, I'm really starting to get excited about it. Um, I've I mentioned on Twitter, you know, I did. Uh, so I just did this video, the Battle of Winterfell, which is basically just setting the table for my next set of videos. And my first series is going to be on King Bran. And I've already written two full video scripts that'll each be like 40 minute videos. And I've got a third video script going. So I'm really fired up about this. There's a lot to say about King Bran. It's not really a matter of going back through the books and finding little funny clues that Bran's going to be king. Like, oh, he sat on his dad's seat at the Harvest Festival, so therefore he's going to be king. Like, I mean, okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, any basic bro podcast can, like, spot that one. But there's a lot more there. And specifically, I think we need to understand what the idea of a green seer king is. Uh, we need to understand the idea of a prince of the green, a prince of the wood, uh, the Fisher King, whose whose health is tied to the land, all these things. Like this is the kind of king that George is conceiving of Bran as. So, I'm fired up about this stuff, man. Uh, tell us what you're doing with your next few videos, because as I mentioned at the top, you're doing a new format a little bit. Your first one was about time, and I do want to talk about time loops and how that might come into this. But what kinds of topics are you going to be tackling with this uh, new sort of documentary style that you're doing? Yeah, so. Actually, my next one is titled Illusions, and that one's really interesting because I'm just bringing up, um, pointing out how illusions have been used by mystics throughout history in the real world, and pointing that out in A Song of Ice and Fire, and just discussing like how much of the magic, how much of the magic is illusion, and how much of their ideas are illusion, and how much the people are illusions, and the one after that that I have planned is actually the Euron video, but I'm actually, re I, had to, I actually had to rethink it because a lot of people have been waiting for it. It's actually part two to the Euron What is Evil video, but this video, the working title is just evil, and I'm actually talking about e evil on like in a broader sense in, in this one, but I'm tying Euron back into it, and then after that, I've got one on religion that I'll do the same way, so I'm kind of picking, I'm, I'm singling out like topics, singular, singular topics, but just kind of discussing them in a really broad sense and just tying real-world mythology and just ideas and concepts into it all. And I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Dude, that sounds like the kind of shit that would make George happy to see, quite honestly. Because it's, I mean, it's fun to figure out how the long night started and whether or not meteorite ore might be the magic ingredient in Valerian steel. 
But really, this is, I mean, George talks about the heart and conflict all the time, because what does that just mean? It's about characters. It's about people. That's what readers relate to is people. You have to find a way to make meteors and stag men relevant to people's hearts and conflict. George excels at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these, these kind of themes are worthwhile to explore because they cut across all the characters. For George's sure. commentary on religion, morality, knighthood, patriarchy, feminism, all that stuff, it runs through multiple arcs. Um, and each character has a little bit of a different view. Cersei's view of, you know, the struggles a woman faces under patriarchy is different than Sansa's view and Brienne's view. But they all have something to say about it. Um, so when you get into a topic like illusions, religion, uh, it's pretty fun. You get, you get some really fun comparisons between characters and stuff like that. So I know we're all looking forward to that, man. It sounds great. I'm very excited about the illusions one in particular. I think the script is already really good. Not done with it yet, but yeah. I'm having illusions. <laughs> You're going to use that, right? You know, uh, shell out for the rights to Cypress Hill, so you could. Oh. I don't know. That would be too expensive. Southside of my be. budget. It's <laughs> yeah, pricey, man. All right, so let's actually um, talk about time for a minute. Some of the most annoying, quote unquote, theories um, are the time travel theories. Uh, however, they're they're annoying because you can't dismiss them. Um, and I, I say annoying because once you open time travel, like all bets are off. Like Brand could be everybody. Maybe he was driving Ares mad. Maybe he's the Night King and Bran the Builder. It just gets really wacky. Um, however, we can't dismiss all that stuff because George has shown us that when Bran sees the past and, and tries to yell at his dad, the tree shakes its leaves and Eddard can like sort of hear it. And Theon hears his name whispered on the, on the wind, which definitely seems like Bran trying to talk to Theon. And if you can rustle your leaves in the past, then you can. that's affecting the past. Now, in the show, we've seen the Hodor thing, where there's a weird time loop, because Bran essentially is in two times at once, but he skin changes Hodor while he does that. And since he's with Hodor in both times, Hodor gets caught in this weird warp, and young Hodor's brain freaks out because old Hodor is being warged by Bran, and Bran's in both places at once, tying the places together, and somehow that, that, that fries his brain. That is so confusing. <laughs> so my question for you, and just having recently sort of pondered on the nature of time and, and how time works, river, is it a cycle? How, are we gonna, is George going to do something clever with time loops um, beyond the Hodor thing? I think that Hodor will happen fairly close to what we saw. Maybe it'll be a different door um, because Hodor's original name is Walder and I think that means wall door like oh a door God. in the wall. But um, do you think George is going to do some fun time loop shit? And specifically, do you think Bran is going to mess with the very ancient past at all? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. T- time is so curious in A Song of Ice and Fire because there's so many hints that go on a bunch of different ways. Um, but as far Brand definitely seems to have somewhat of an effect on the past, and Bloodraven does seem certain that that he can't do it. But at the same time, I'm wondering like how much more powerful is Brand than Bloodraven? Maybe Bloodraven has tried. I think he does say that he's tried, but he, it's never it's never worked before. But not only is Brand just more powerful naturally than he, naturally than he is. They're currently in a time where magic in general is just getting stronger. So, um, so, so maybe to some extent, Bran will shape the past, or maybe he can figure out how to 
communicate in some fashion. Now, as far as like time travel, like the, I don't see Bran like teleporting into the past and like being there physically and talking and be like, oh, hey, I'm Bran. But as far as like him, like gently, maybe like subtly pushing something like the past, the future affecting the past in some weird, like kind of like wobbly way. Let's say they're like parallel dimensions. Maybe he like pushes it a little bit and it sends like a, a wave through the past or something like that. It affects it in a, in a subtle kind of way. Yeah, because think about the effect of Bran whispering Theon's name. It's a very small thing, mm -hmm. but it was effectively giving Theon his name back. And George makes that very clear by transitioning from chapters titled Reek back to Theon. Um, and you can see that Theon, ha it, something changes in Theon after that event. Like, oh, the gods are talking to me. And he starts finding a little bit of courage. He defies the um, the six, uh, I forget, the washerwomen. Like, he kind of stands up to him and is like, yeah, kill me if you want to kill me. And, like, it's a sort of kind of courage that he embraces. And then he ends up finding the courage to help Jane Poole escape and all that stuff. So even something as subtle as whispering someone's name George has shown that that could cause ripples and change a lot of things. So what I'm asking Quinn is, and what I guess what I'm hoping for really, uh, is, is there going to be a Hodor moment, but going all the way back to like the long night? Like, are we going to see Bran get in contact with the last hero and whisper something on the wind or something really crazy like that? Or does Bran accidentally screw something up? and help create the White Walkers or the Night King. Like, that's actually probably what we should think about. There's the potential for all of that because of the butterfly effect. I mean, when, okay, when you're dealing with a nonlinear deterministic system, like, if, if you mess with it, like, the trajectories will severely alter things. It, like, the more time there is, the more the trajectory is altered. Do you see what I mean? So that the more time passes, the greater the effect will be. So, like, for sure, like, a subtle thing, a tiny little thing in the past drastically change the future or just, like, lead things like lead things in, like, a totally different way. So, yeah, I see that could happen. I could happen. Like, even if, it, even if it's, like, the most subtle push, maybe Bloodraven just was not strong enough to do it, but Bran is strong enough just to push a little bit. And that could totally mess something up, for sure. What I think what we will see is not like a change timeline, alternate reality thing. It'll be more like this always happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What ha it's like lost rules. Right. So because when Bran goes back in the show, the Hodor thing is mostly tragic. I mean, he does have to warg into Hodor to escape the cave or whatever. And technically he needs Hodor to be, you know, simple in order for him to play the role that he did all the way on, you know, to help Bran get there or whatever. But basically, like, Bran always did that. All we found out was that, oh, that's how Hodor got that way is because future Bran was there in that moment. So it'd be the same kind of thing. Like, oh, that's how the White Walkers got created. Future Bran went snooping around in the past and, oops, did the wrong thing. For the most part, I guess what I'm saying is that George Martin is going to present time travel as bad and trying to do it or mess with the past is going to only really cause problems or it might be the kind of thing where, like, we have to do it and we do get the solution out of it, but it also is the problem. So it's it's just not going to be portrayed as clean or easy or neato or anything like that. It's mostly going to be tragic, I think, if it happens. And it's like, yeah, it's like, 
I said it's using lost rules, but these aren't lost rules. Like lost kind of made these rules like popular, but it's just basically the idea of what happened, happened. Sure, you like you said, sure you can affect the past, but it's like it always happened. That's the way things always were. So it's kind of like it gets into like kind of what I touched into my video too about like how much is predetermined because of if it always happened, then did you really have a choice in anything that you did? You know, you get what I'm saying? Like if Bran always did that, did he even have a choice? And well, I, that's, I don't that's think a he question did. for Noah, man. You got to ask Noah how he simultaneously exists you know, in the 1986-7 timeline as well as the 1954 timeline and 2019. That doesn't make... Oh, sorry. We're not talking about Dark. Watch Dark, everyone. You should. Yeah. The season two is crazy good. I'm honestly... If there's ever something that I cover on this channel besides A Song of Ice and Fire, it's either going to be Dark or, like, if the new Lord of the Rings series catches my eye or something like that. But um, I probably will never wade into Lord of the Rings because there's just too many people that know way too much and all they're ever going to tell me is that Turin wasn't an elf and that I'm not saying fucking some elvish word right and shit so I'm probably not I'm even going to go there but... wrong. that's not what happened <laughs> uh, in any case watch Dark it is awesome uh, I mean if you like A Song of Ice and Fire you will like Dark 100% guarantee uh, I will go over to your house and eat your shoe in person if you don't like Dark and you like A Song of Ice and Fire I don't know what to say all right, we're killing everyone who hasn't actually watched Dark, so. Oh, yeah, here's a fun little question. Um, so in the show, Bran gets the ice mark on his arm after confronting Night's King. Um, in the show, they use this basically to let Night King into the Weirwood Cave. What I'm wondering, Quinn, is, is I'm, I've been looking for a way for one of the Starks to turn into an other or to turn cold, either John or Bran. Uh, so I've got ideas about both of them. But in particular, when the show gave us the ice mark, I got kind of excited. Because, like, well, if part of him is icy, maybe it's like grayscale and it's going to spread. And he eventually will turn into a damn white walker if they don't do something. It's also kind of like Frodo getting stabbed with the Morgul blade and, you know, and all that stuff. So they kind of dropped it. But the reason why I think it might be a real thing is because there is a castle on the wall called Ice Mark. Mm. So what do you think? Is this totally a show invention or will there be some sort of uh, icy touch ice transformation thing for Bran. Dude, so I would love... I mean, I, I don't know. It would be really cool if that did happen and Bran did turn into, like, the ice Stark or whatever. Because then there's so much... In the, in the Legends, they talk about the brother versus brother, like the Stark brother, like with the Night King versus the other Stark brother. And it's like... It's just, like, it's a really cool idea to have. Like, maybe it's, like, John. Now you have to go f defeat your, like, sorcerer, ice king brother who's, like, mad powerful. So I feel like that'd be really, really cool to see. Well, it would be setting Bran free, because ultimately Bran's destiny is to be the Summer King. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the idea that, you know, maybe he's imprisoned, temporarily taken over, trapped. Like, what if the White Walkers storm the cave? You know, what if he's... Or maybe it's his his soul gets trapped in the weird net for a little bit, Um because in the show, basically what happens is, like, the Night King sees him and grabs his arm, and Bran gets away and sort of pops out of the dream. But you kind of get the feeling like Night King was trying to, like, grab him or, or something like that. And mm -hmm. the other thing I want to talk about that's like this is the Waymar prologue, right? So the Waymar prologue, what's interesting is that when the others surround Waymar, they don't kill him right away. Uh, the five of them hang back. One of them comes forward, is it like almost like a ritualistic duel, and they fight until the point 
that Waymar takes a wound and his hot blood drips out onto the snow. And once the others see that, they start laughing, and the next blow that the other strikes shatters his sword, and then all the others move in and they kill him. Mm -hmm. um, so people have wondered for years if there was some sort of test going on, uh, if the others were testing Waymar to see if he was, you know, I would say like a cold hands, like an undead person, or testing him to see if he was capable of winning the duel or something like that. And then when he failed, they just cut it off, laughed at him, dismissed him, and they all came and stabbed him. Waymar is compared to John in many ways. Moleskin gloves, uh, gray, um, gray eyes. Uh, there's a few other things too. But, and this is an old form find. I didn't find this. This is one of those ones that people are onto a long time ago. Waymar seems like a John parallel. He's also kind of like a last hero parallel because he's fighting the others and his sword snaps from the cold just like a last hero. And John is set up to be a new last hero. So the question I'm trying to ask is that my new idea about this prologue is that the others actually wanted to turn John. They're looking for, not only are they looking for John, um, they want to turn John into a new Knight's King or into an other. Because look at what happens to Waymar after they kill him. He rises with one blue eye, which is like the Odin symbolism. It's the Blood Raven, Green Seer symbolism. But it's with a blue eye instead of a red eye. And so it kind of sets him up or implies him as an alt green seer or an Odin figure who's possessed, you know, the icy magic. And I just wonder if that's sort of Martin showing us what the others would like to do. Um, like if that had been Jon Snow instead of Waymar. I guess what I'm trying to say is they weren't just trying to kill Waymar. They, they wanted something more complex than to just kill him. And the only thing I could think of is to capture him, transform him, something like that. And so that leaves us with the, the idea of Jon Snow uh, being, being taken by the others and transformed by the others. So anything, uh, any thoughts on that? So yeah, me, me and Gray Eric covered this chapter in, in the prologue. So we were just talking about some of this stuff because it seemed, like you said, they come at him very ritualistically. And it's also like they kind of look at his sword and so we were wondering maybe if they were looking at the sword, trying to figure it out, figure out if it was a sword that could harm them, perhaps. Oh, and it definitely, and, it, and you definitely see that they understand just culture and the idea of a one-on-one -on -one battle. So they're not just monsters. So yeah, um, yeah, I could, I could see something going like that for sure. This relates to, um, you know, John's current state. Uh, right now, he's dead. He just got stabbed, and this is in the books now. His body's laying in the snow, just bled out. His spirit is almost surely inside of Ghost. There's a lot of clues that John's body's going to be stored in the ice cells. Um, there's a lot of clues. I mean, it's almost headcanon for a lot of folks. Uh, and I, what I've wondered is that, you know, it seems like John's body's going to be dead for a few days. John's going to be in Ghost for a couple days. They're going to merge a little bit. John's going to wander around in his crypt stream and meet Leanna and play Rhaegar's harp or whatever. What I've wondered, Quinn, is will the others steal his body for a time? Like, will his body get whited? And then they've got to do some Melisandre or brand magic to, like, take his body back. Now, you think we could get something like that? Now, that would be interesting. And I would wonder if, if that did happen, what effect would that have on Jon Snow when he goes back into his body? Would he have some memories of what his body was doing when he was walking around? Would he then have like a greater connection to just like the others and their just like whole deal? Would he be able to 
kind of like maybe like cold hands, but like even more so because he's actually been dead and been a white and then had his consciousness put back into that body. So I wonder if if that happened, would he be tied into their whole thing still? Or would the connection just be cut off because the because his life force got back into it? So that would be interesting. And I would wonder if that did happen, what what role would that play for the whole narrative? Would it, would it make John like even more special and even more equipped to destroy the White Walkers because he's been whited? He's been connected with their whole power? Yes. So that's super interesting. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm thinking about. So that's the whole in my green zombies theory, right? Is that cold hands should be a, a fire white. All the green zombie uh, foreshadowing has to do with Blood Raven. I'm not Blood Raven, but Barrack rather, sitting in that cave, who's a fire white. Um, the burning scarecrow brothers in John's Azor High Dream, who are again burning scarecrows. That's just a symbol of the King of Winter, Wicker Man, which is also a green man that gets burnt. So everything about my green zombies theory says that the undead Night's Watchmen should be fiery people, and if John's raised by Melisandre then that's what he should be, is a like a barrack-style fire white, but better. Cold Hands, however, is not. He's a cold white. He's basically as if somebody had been cold whited, and then the power of the others was broken, and their spirit was then like put back in their body or something like that. But he's still animated originally, but reanimated by cold magic. So that is what brings me to the idea that John could get body snatched, his body could be cold whited, but then filled with the fiery spirit and the R'hllor resurrection. And then you'd have like a cold, icy body, but then a hot spirit. And oh, by the way, if you look back at his Azor High dream that he's wielding the burning red sword, he's armored in black ice. Mm -hmm. So that would fit this very well if his body is like ice armor, but he has the fiery Azor High dragon magic animating him on the inside. So that would be cool, huh? (laughs) <laughs> I would, yeah, and I would love it too if in the next book we could get like maybe Bran seeing how the Children of the Forest saved uh, Cold Hands from the magical. Th- I would love to see that. I would love to see something that's more than just like um, what what do they say they did to him? Like stuck a dagger in his heart. I would love to see something more than that. Uh, it'd be really cool to just. I want because I the Children of the Forest. I'm just very curious as to how their magic works. And I know George R. R. Martin's read up a lot on paganism. And I'm just curious to see like them do something interesting and real uh, and ritualistic that relates back to maybe like some real world stuff and just like seeing what elements they take from nature. Because I always talk about that Daenerys chapter where she does all this like seemingly like very specific ritualistic stuff. And it's like all relating back to like real world like ideas and just like um, placing things at like points of power on the body and just like a bunch of different like stuff. So I'd be curious to see how it worked. I love that idea. I would love to see the making of Cold Hands. That would be a cool way to reveal his identity, too. For sure. Um, and that could be knowledge that Bran uses to help raise John, perhaps. Um, so yeah. that could be a way that, that Bran plays a part. Because I like the idea that Bran and Melisandre will both be involved in John's resurrection. That's why the children of the forest are like, oh, no, don't try to call your father back from the dead. That's very naughty, and nobody can do that anyway. Don't try that. Whatever you do, it's like, yeah, okay, that's coming. But what's cool about that is that they've already had contact. So, like, Melisandre has seen uh, Bloodraven and Bran. True. And Bloodraven saw her, so that tells you right there that they can communicate through the fire. Like, if he if he saw her, that means that they could, like, they could collaborate. Let's bring John back this way. Could happen. You're absolutely right. 
That is another great point. Oh, you're on fire today, Quinn. Thanks, man. These are great nuggets <laughs> you're bringing to, uh, to the mythical astronomers over here. This is hot. Mm-hmm. And speaking of hot, uh, Ravenous Reader just had a good find. So we were talking about the ice mark, right? Longclaw was not so long or heavy a sword as his father's ice. So think about ice swords. But it was Valyrian steel. He touched the edge of the blade to mark where the blow must fall. And Ygritte shivered. That's cold, she said. So he's thinking about, he's not ice, but he's thinking about ice and then touching Ygritte with the ice mark. This reminds me a little bit of um, Jamie being knighted by Arthur Dane. Because I think Dawn is the original ice. I'm going down with the ship on that one. And so what we have is Jamie being turned into a symbolic White Walker, a Kingsguard member, by Dawn, by an ice sword. So this, I have wondered if like the ice swords or the ice spears is a way that others can do transformation of some kind. So mm-hmm. we shall see. Nice one, Raven. For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a pretty good foreshadowing. So we'll have to look for more ice mark stuff and see if that maybe is a thing. For sure. Making of cold hands, dude, I'm stoked for that. I, you're firing up the imaginations of the people in the chat here. Yeah, for sure, because there's so many cool ways that George R. R. Martin could do that in the book. And that's, um, nice, Ball the Bard is singing, Dawn is the original ice. Yes, sing it. <laughs> One of the whole points of Dawn being the original ice would be that it is important for magical reasons. I would love to see it come back out into play and uh and do something i love the idea of ice transformation i want somebody to get ice transformed i don't know if it's bran or john or maybe even danny um which is something we're going to get into or melisandre are you rolling your eyes at me no i'm saying or melisandre oh yes uh, she yeah, could be yeah. hands of white fire lady mm-hmm. because you know people I, years ago people were saying something about george R. martin having this blue melisandre figure and it was the same figure as the melisandre one but it was blue so it was like the whole like idea was like he had it with the rest of the ones in his collection and it didn't match any of the other characters except for her. So it was like, is there going to be like a blue, like Ice Melisandre? So like I, a bunch of people were talking about this years ago, I remember. Yeah, I, I used that as evidence. Uh, actually, Duran Durandon, I should give credit. He's the one who spotted that first as evidence that Night's Queen was actually just a temperature inverted Melisandre. You know, Melisandre making black shadows with Stannis is like Night's Queen making white shadows with the Night's King, yada, yada, yada. And the whole point of getting a a color inverted Melisandre could be to give us, you know, somebody that looks like Night's Queen. But yeah, it could be also speculating that Melisandre will be flipped. I do think there is a fire to ice flip that can happen like a switch. Um, I think that's what happened to the others. Basically, you have Azor High, a dragon person, Night's Queen and Ice Priestess. And when he gave her his fiery seed, gave her a bit of his soul, and we got white shadows that have burning ice, you know, eyes that burn like cold stars. So it's as if the power of fire has been turned cold, but it still burns like fire. So I do think a flip is possible for Mel. Um, Also think that Danny, Night's Queen, could be a thing, and that could explain why John might have to stab her or kill her body, although that might not be as simple as it seems on the show. Um, I don't want to let too much out of the bag there. I've been talking with Melanie Lot 7 and Ball the Bard about some of this behind the scenes, but... 
we could talk about this, but I feel like if I start talking about Danny Night's Queen, then we can like it might go on for way too long. Well, give us a give us a few minutes. I mean, oh, well, because okay, look. So here's the thing, like, let's say like the Night King is a guy in the book, and like with Danny's whole thing is like, I always talk about how she's like freeing slaves in the East, but then there's certain slaves that sell themselves back into slavery. It's like people don't necessarily know what's like good for them necessarily, and at least, at least like that's. Danny's position it's like she would be like oh I know better than you what's good for you right so it's like if the Night King can't come to her and it's like, it gives it gives her like this is the power to make people do what you say right that that could be very tempting to someone like Daenerys right this is the power to make people listen because you wipe them and now they have to listen and that they're all dead but at least they're at least everyone's in peace at least there's peace so I feel like that's something that could be tempting to Danny, and then John could step in and kill her. Then it would make a lot more sense. But then it would be like it would it would it would kind of like it would be more than her just going mad because then there's like a magical influence as well. It goes beyond that too. So, so yeah. my question is where is where would Danny be tempted? Where is she going to come across access to that power? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the werewolves. Maybe maybe she could literally come into contact with the werewolf, and it recognizes who she is, and it's like, and then she comes into direct contact with the great other that lives inside of the werewolf, or just I, I, I don't know. This I uh, hadn't really thought about it a lot, but yeah, sure. Well, what what Paul the Bard and I and Mel were talking about was uh, uh, Euron. Okay. If you know, because Euron is trying to get his hands on Danny, so what we can see is that Danny aligning with Euron first. Because it kind of makes sense. He has a fleet. He's into dragons. He's you know, he's handsome, kind of a bad boy, like Dario a little bit. Ugh. So maybe she allies with him, and then he he's the one that seems to be on track to become a Knights King figure. So mm-hmm. maybe Danny getting wrapped up with him is how she ends up getting. I would say not not tempted, but rather turned into a Knights Queen against her will, more like. Oh, um, interesting. Or or like because that's what. Okay, so go back to the House of the Undying. House of the Undying, we've got a bunch of blue shadows sitting around. They're described as cold blue shadows. And I'm talking about the last room that she gets to where she sees the real Undying. They're old and dry, corpse-like. They're called cold blue shadows. They're sitting around a blue, a dark blue heart that's beating. So to me, this is language that's suggesting the others sitting around the heart of winter. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to trap Danny and steal her magic, steal her dragon fire, and use it for their own ends. And so that, to me, is a huge hint that that is what the others would like to do. They would like to get their hands on Danny. They would like to get you know use turn her dragon into an ice dragon, or just take her magic, turn her into a knight's queen, so they can make better White Walkers or some shit like that. And of course, we know at the end of that scene, Drogo burns all the Undying to a crisp. So, so it. it if she's trapped, it'll be temporary. But what do you think about that scene? I like that because, it, and it's curious you brought up Euron too because you wonder, like, he wants to marry Danny, but like, is that all there is? It would make sense that like he's like he like needs like someone with like magical specific blood. It seems like everyone is coming to Daenerys for her magical potency, right? It doesn't make sense that Euron would just be wanting to marry her and just for the. Well, I guess there's the dragon element too, but yeah. Um, yeah, if Euron was tied into the others some way, then it would make sense that, like, because she's a, she's a special person, right? Like, that's what the whole book series has been hinting at. There's something special and unique about Daenerys. Her blood is magically potent. 
So it makes sense that people would want or that like different groups or entities would want to use her for specific things. And we've seen evidence of that like all over the place, right? That different people want to use her for whatever. The Undying, uh, Quaith, uh, Marwin maybe, Mary Mazdur even. Um, yeah. It's a common repeating thing. So I definitely think that could foreshadow the others essentially trying to enslave her. And I think that Euron would be the logical mechanism for that to happen. And that would start to make sense of the whole Euron is a Night King and Danny is potentially evil, quote unquote, or has to be, instead of murdered, I'm hoping maybe she's got to be like freed from, you know, bondage sorcery or something like that. But I don't know. We'll see. I've, we've got some thoughts. We're going to develop on that topic, but... Murder. Uh, let's see. Um, going back to the ice mark, Raven Salix has another find. That's Ravenous Reader, of course. She says, In the Seven Kingdoms, it was said that the wall marked the end of the world. That is true for them as well. It is all in where you stood. So the wall, as we know, is an analog for an ice sword. It's described as a snake and a sword. It's described as alive with light, like dawn. I've covered all this extensively in many of my podcasts. And so you have an ice sword marking something just like we saw Jon Snow holding Longclaw but thinking of ice and then marking Ygritte's neck. So nice job. Ravenous Reader will have this unraveled by tomorrow afternoon and I will report back to you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, good stuff. So. (laughs) For sure. She's pointing out that Bran is marked by the salty tear that falls on his face when he goes through the Black Gate. When he passes over to the other side. Is that kind of like an ice mark? It could be. Um, the tears um, have to do with ice because when the wall melts, it's said to be weeping. And also because of Alyssa's tears uh, is a waterfall that gets frozen over. And that's and Bran's, Bran's tears freeze in the dream when he looks at the heart of winter. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So I guess that's just, I don't know if that ties into that, but that's interesting. Abs- well, yeah, it would. It definitely would. There you go, Robbie. Run with it. That's good stuff. So the Black Gate. I love asking people about the Black Gate. What the hell do you think the Black Gate is? Which Black Gate? That's the Black Gate at the Eerie? No, no, like no. At the, of... um, at the Night Fort, the talking weirwood face that swallows Bran. Oh, that thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that thing. That's so weird. I have no idea. That's one of the weirdest things in the book series so far because it's kind of one of the most out there because it's so weird. And then it, it talks... And the mouth opens wide. I don't know what that portal was. Was it you that suggested? I think it was one somebody that was like, maybe this was the place where they gave the babies. Like when the Night King and the Night Queen were perhaps sacrificing, this is where they left whatever they were sacrificing. And the others would come from the other side to grab it because they couldn't cross it. So this would be like the point where they would like leave it, put it through. And yeah, and this was kind of the deal that the Night night's watch made when the when the night when the night kings and all his stuff was going on and so at that point it would make sense why only like someone from the night's watch can get through it because it was them that like set up the whole thing so yeah but i don't i don't know there's like a lot of mystery to that thing so that's a very old form idea again that's definitely not one i would claim um the idea that that is where night king shuffled his babies through there yep that's an old idea and I mean, Bran is standing in for a baby or a child being given to the others, in a sense. You know, he's being smuggled through the Black Gate by a Night's Watchman. Um, And the cool thing is that going the other way through the gate, 
is a craster baby monster who is literally is a child that was supposed to be given to the others and sam is smuggling it through the black gate but going south so it's not hard to look at that and say maybe it went the other way originally baby sacrifice i however think that weirwood organism is really important and that it's like um that it's the reason it was there before the wall and before the night fort and I think the night fort also predates the wall. It's said to be the first castle on the wall. I think it predates the wall. And what I think is that they made the night fort because of that weirwood organism. That was the thing that was there first, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Because the weirwoods are they're older than everything. They always watch the first stone get set of Winterfell or the Ravenry or wherever else. So I think that's that's what we're looking at is some sort of really important weirwood organism. The night fort was created because of it. And that is probably where the others were created, almost undoubtedly. So I like how you call it weirwood organism because we don't know what that is. Because it's not like a weirwood tree where it's like a carved face with like sap. This is like a mouth that talks and then can like open up. So this is like something we've never seen anything like this anywhere else in the series. It's like totally out there and bizarre. So I yeah, I, I definitely call it the weirdest thing in the series and Wiz the Smith is piping up saying I think the old castle called Snowgate may have been where they exchanged bastards with the others um, so I think that all the gates are basically just symbolism getting at the same idea so calling it Snowgate or there's one other gate um, it's just telling you like because the word snow that's what they name the bastards of course uh, from the north so a Snowgate is where you, you take the bastard babies so I think the same idea is being developed at all the gates, essentially. I still think it probably happened at the Night Fort because that's where we actually see the weirwood face and that's where the Night King was there. But it's kind of inconsequential. Maybe it was happening in multiple places. Uh, the, the point is the idea is being developed. And um, Ball the Bard chimes in to say, it sounds like the idea that she had about, you know, all human green seer children being meant to give... Okay, so this is talking about the first night, Quinn. Um, it's an ancient northern tradition where the lords get to essentially have sex with a newlywed woman before the husband on the wedding night. The logical reason to do this, because if your lords are green seers or skin changers, um, they want to get children with the gift, and that's hard. And Vermeer Sixkins talks about this. He, has, he, he rapes women. He uses his wolves to basically bring women to his cave and rape them. It's very dark. But the point is that he spreads his seed around and says that none of them had the gift, and he's kind of pissed off about it. So you get the idea that green seers and skin changers, they're very rare, one in a thousand or whatever. And so if you're a green seer king or a green seer, a, a ward king, you desperately want to produce an offspring that has the same power that you do so you can maintain control. And so that perhaps is where the first night originated. They basically are enforcing their right to spread their seed everywhere, like Garth the Green. Again, this could, could be the same set of ideas, so that hopefully one of them will be a green seer. And the uh, Ball the Bard's idea of going on to that is that um, if you do get a green seer baby, you know it's promised to to the Lord. But in this case, the Lord might be the others. And so what you end up having is any child that has the gift, perhaps, was supposed to be brought. Or maybe all the bastard boys. So there's a few variations there. Yeah, there has to be a point, right? That's so good, though. I really, really like that. Well, hat tip, ball the bard. Mm-hmm, for sure. And this also flows into another idea that I wanted to talk about, and maybe this will be the last one that we do today, is the blood of the other idea. 
and this is one I did a whole series about this, but basically it's the idea that the Starks descend at some point from a child stolen from the others, from Knights King and Queen. And the, the analog would be Sam and Gilly not giving Monster to the White Walkers, but rather stealing him and taking him south of the Wall. So what if this happened, you know, it's one of those classic things where the past and the future echo each other. The reason why Craster is set up as an analog to Knight's King is because we hear that Knight's King and Queen were sacrificing to the others. Craster calls what he does sacrificing to the gods. And what he's doing is giving his male children to the others to be turned into others somehow. Mm -hmm. This leads you to believe that Knight's King and Queen were actually giving their children to the others like we were saying. And so it creates a very nice parallel when you steal a baby from Craster. The Night's Watch are the ones who steal it. They smuggle it south. What if the Night's Watch did the same thing with Night's King and Queen, stole one of those babies meant to be given to the others, that baby becomes a last hero or the Stark or last hero's son or some shit like that, the progenitor of House Stark. This is why the Starks would then be equivalent to the Targaryens. The Targaryens have a drop of dragon blood. The Starks have a drop of the other blood. And it also increases the idea that the Starks are the ones tied to the others and have to resolve this ancient mystery and this ancient tension and all that crap. It also is, it creates a fun wordplay with the prince that was promised because John becomes the prince that was promised to the others. Yeah. And so one of the ideas is that there's this pact that we've been sort of hinting around where the Starks or the Northerners or the First Men are supposed to be giving some amount of babies to the others and they're not. And so the way to satiate the others is to give them John or Bran. And so we're right back to the idea of the others trying to transform one of them. So, yeah, I think that's super solid. And yeah, I have a version of this theory that like works even in like the timeline that you don't use. Um, Cause like it could have still just been like the, cause it says the Stark King took down the, the Night King. So it could have li- literally just been that Stark King taking this baby that was related to him. Cause old man says the Night King was, was a Stark. And being like, I'm not going to kill a baby that's relating to me and just keeping it alive and just being, and that's how it got into the Stark bloodline. So it could totally work either way you look at it. And I think it's really, really solid, actually, because then, like you said, it adds so much weight to the prince that was promised. The prince that was promised to us. So it just make it just makes so much sense on so many levels. And it just, it's, yeah, it's really good. So the echo that supports that theory specifically is the Tower of Joy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kingsguard are set up as others, analogs to the others, over and over and over. I've, I've talked about that a lot. Um, inside the tower is Lyanna, Lyanna of the Blue Winter Rose. So she's serving as an Ice Queen or a Knight's Queen symbol. Rhaegar is, is your Knight's King in this case. And so what you have is Ned Stark with his gray shadow wraith soldiers. So these are like Knight's Watchmen, essentially. You have a Stark with with the Night's Watchmen. They're defeating the others in battle, and then they're claiming a baby from the Night's Queen and taking it home to raise as a Stark. And that's exactly what we're talking about, where after Night's King was defeated, whether it was after the Long Night or during the Long Night, it's then that one of his children that wasn't turned into an other maybe was taken home by the Starks, raised as a Stark, and lo and behold, he becomes the one to pass on his genes, you know, somehow, so... Yeah, that, that works equally well. Either way, the Starks could be the blood of the other, and giving one of the Starks back to the others could be part of it. For sure. Definitely. Super solid. Um, I mentioned to you the chapter where John lets the wildlings through the wall. Yes. 
And that chapter is really interesting uh, because when he lets the wildlings through the wall, they are described like the others. Um, they, they do the others double entendre thing seven different times in the chapter, and the, it's reinforced by symbolism like, you know, the others from the frozen shore went lightly on the snow because they had the bear paws, just like the others don't break the snow when they walk. So that's all in um, The Long Night Was His to Rule. I think that's Blood of the Other Four. Point is, this scene symbolically looks like John letting the wildlings, I mean, letting the others rather, through the wall. And it could be implying a couple of different things. It could, it could be implying that uh, letting the others back through the wall is more metaphorical. It's like letting them back into the weirwoods. You know, the, the wall is the thing that, the, uh, Quinn, where they, you know, the wall is what exiles the others to the frozen lands. So letting them back across could be like letting the others back into the trees. Conversely, it could be like John becoming a Night's King and leading the others against Westeros because he wants to take the wildlings and attack Winterfell. Um, so it could be both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. I mean, yeah, that's what's so great about the writing. It's, it can be interpreted in both ways for sure. I, I do like the I, I like the idea of John uh, joining the side of the White Walker. So I don't know. For some reason, I've always liked that. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the idea of him leading the army of the White Walkers. Super cool. It would definitely be conflicting. It could be one of those things where he does it temporarily and he has to be set free. Or it could be that he becomes a White Walker so that he can resolve the mess. Because right now we've got, you know, we were going to talk about pacts, right? Like yeah. there might be a pact in the past. We might need a new pact. How are we going to negotiate with the others? We don't really have a way to do that right now. And specifically, if John is like, if, like, like we're saying, if, he, if they've got the blood of the White Walkers... Maybe he would be that person that could turn, but then like still keep himself, and maybe he'd be like the buffer. He's like, I'm part you and I'm part you, so maybe I can like help you both out and like and kind of work this out. So maybe that could happen. That's kind of what I'm thinking of, yeah, because John has a lot of that symbolism of being a mediator. Um, he's very Mithras-like, and Mithras, of course, is a uh, governs handshakes and and mediation and agreements and stuff like that, and packs. So. We're going to do some stuff about John in the future in our End of Ice and Fire series, and I'll probably get back into this uh, scene in a little more detail. Uh, but yeah, thanks, Quinn. I think we've had a good discussion today. I'm great. Got two solid hours of fun speculation. We got some people fired up for some of the things that might come in the Winds of Winter, and that's kind of what I'm all about right now. It's chasing out the disappointment from some of the show endings and getting fired up for the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring because, guys, this is going to be fun all the f the fretting about George finishing the story and the fretting about things being spoiled will evaporate like mist uh, in the morning sun, I believe, once we get our hands on Winds of Winter. So stay right here on this channel and on the Ideas of Ice and Fire channel for lots of exciting new videos about A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, yeah, we'll be just building excitement till the Winds of Winter and then we'll have all new stuff to rip into. So Quinn, I think everyone knows where to find you. It's Ideas of Ice and Fire everywhere. And uh, we, we talked about your new video on time, so go check that out. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, having me. It's been so much fun. I can't wait till the next one. Right on. And patrons, thank you for all the support during my break, sticking with me. I haven't, didn't put out any content for, like, two whole months. And you guys stuck with me, so I really appreciate that. I have, like I said, lots of scripts happening right now. I am in the middle of a writing binge. 
been writing for about a week and a half straight, um, pounding out scripts and stuff. I'm really excited about some of the King Brand symbolism. So, yep, we're not going anywhere, guys. Don't be let down. Don't be disappointed about the end of the show. Don't think it's the party's over and all that stuff. We've got lots of good stuff coming your way. So thanks, everyone. And I will see you again soon with the video. And I will be putting this out, uh, an edited version of this conversation out on the podcast feed. But um, you'll see a new brand video from me probably in like two weeks. So lovely to see you all, guys. Until we meet again. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.